Kronos, a techno thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn, narrated by the author. Episode four: He never leaves loose ends. Chapter eighteen, Tuesday morning. I wake before Nadia and decide to rouse her with some breakfast, courtesy of the motel's free buffet. I pull on my jacket and head over to the foyer. It's a cool, clear morning. Despite my coat, I find myself shivering. The breakfast is laid out on a table beside the reception desk. I pour coffee into two styrofoam cups and start to gather a couple of plates worth of food. Faiza enters. Good morning, she says. Did we have a good night? She asks. Raising an eyebrow, it suddenly occurs to me that not only would Faiza have noticed Nadia's absence from her bedroom last night, but that she probably heard our exertions through the thin wall between the two rooms. Awkward. Yes, thank you. I reply. I can't think of anything else to say. Faiza leans into me. Look, she says softly. It's really none of my business who you choose to spend your nights with, but you've known this woman for less than forty-eight hours. Aren't you going a bit quick? I blush. You're right. I say, this really is none of your business. Yes, I've known Nadia only a short while, but we've been through a lot together already. I pause as a thought occurs to me. Are you worried we'll get distracted from the search for Max? I ask. It's Faiza's turn to blush. That thought had occurred to me. She admits. Well, you don't have to worry on that account. I reassure her. We're all on the same side here. We all want to find Max. Not quite, corrects Faiza. Nadia wants to find Max's work. After breakfast, we set off and head back into the center of Santa Rosa. We hand out flyers and we talk to people. Lots of people. No one we encounter recalls seeing Max. The only things we have to show for our labors are sore feet and strained vocal cords. By the end of the day, we've looked everywhere that we can think of, and we're dead on our feet. Max's trail has gone cold, and so we decide to head back to San Francisco. We drive back in utter silence. Faiser and Nadia have barely spoken to each other all day. A few exchanges of token pleasantries at most. I can tell that Faiza has been unsettled by the events of last night, but what Nadia and I choose to do in private as consenting adults is really none of her damn business. I'm certain that it won't distract me from the search for Max. The problem is that I've run out of new ideas for looking for him. We all have. All we can do is more of the same. We drive back to San Francisco along the 101 in the early evening darkness. I'm again doing the driving. Faiza's asleep in the back seat of the car, and Nadia is dozing in the passenger seat beside me. I glance across at Nadia. Even in sleep, there's a gracefulness to her, the way she holds her arms to her chest and how she bends her knees, keeping the legs neatly together. Now. I'd be lying if I said that I hadn't immediately found Nadia attractive. Right from the first sight of her in the Reykjavik coffee shop, I was drawn to her. 
what heterosexual male wouldn't be, apart, of course, from her father and any brothers she might have. However, I wasn't going to act on those feelings. First, I never thought for a moment that the attraction might be mutual. Second, long ago, I learned the importance of keeping business and pleasure separate. A bad ending to a three-month romance with a rather cute member of the HR department gave me enough mental scars to last a lifetime. So yes, I was drawn to Nadia right from the start. However, I expected us to have a purely professional relationship during our search for Max. Last night changed all of that. Things happened suddenly, unexpectedly. As I take another glance across at Nadia, I realise just how little I know about her. I know she's from Poland and has lived there all of her life. But that's about it. Does she have a family there? A mother? Father? Siblings? Is there a boyfriend hanging around somewhere? With her striking looks, she'd have no shortage of offers, I'm sure. And if she is involved with someone, is he a homicidal, axe-wielding maniac? I could really do without more people being mad at me right now. So many questions, no answers. I mull on this for a while, then realise, guiltily, that I should be thinking about the next steps and hunt for Max. Maybe Faiza is right to be concerned that Nadia's going to distract me from the task in hand. I shake my head to clear it and return my attentions to the road in front of me. An hour later, we arrive back in San Francisco and drop off the car. Faiza heads upstairs to rest while Nadia goes out to do some food shopping at the supermarket. I consider accompanying her, but decide that I should give Buckeridge a call instead. I head up to the roof of the apartment building. It's quiet up here. With the nighttime cityscape all around me, I feel distant, unconnected from the noise and bustle of the streets below me. I tap my earpiece. Iris, put me through to Heath Buckeridge, I command. Buckeridge answers within two rings. Mr Jenkins, I'm so glad to hear from you again. How goes the search? He thunders. I start to seriously wonder whether Buckeridge has some hearing impairment that causes him to raise his voice so much. Not good, I'm afraid, I respond. We thought we had a lead. A bus driver remembered giving Max a lift up to Sonoma County. We spent the past two days up there looking around, but we found nothing. Too bad, too bad, says Buckeridge consolingly. Thanks again for letting us in the other day, I say. On the backup hard disk we found a folder named Kronos. It was full of university papers. Could this be anything to do with Max's work at Dorg? Kronos, repeats Buckeridge, thinking to himself. Can't say that it sounds familiar, but I'll check with his immediate colleagues and see if they know anything. That would be wonderful, I say. Thank you. My pleasure, says Buckeridge. He pauses for a moment and then continues. I'm glad you called me, as I had an idea today that might help us track down Max. Really? I ask. A fresh spark of hope suddenly alight in my heart. Do you still have Max's backup? asks Buckeridge. Of course, I say. I've got a complete copy of it running within a VM, and the original hard disk is stored safely. 
Excellent, says Buckeridge. Come and see me first thing tomorrow. Bring the disc. Chapter 19. Wednesday morning. Nadia and I set off for the dog offices bright and early. As we walk, I wonder how to bring up the subject of Monday night. We haven't really talked since then, and I am unsure as to how Nadia feels about it. Does she regret that we got together? Or is she counting the hours until we can be together again? I simply cannot tell from her demeanour. However, now doesn't seem like the right time to talk about all of this. Even at this relatively early hour, there are plenty of people about on the pavements. I resolve to park the conversation until we are properly alone, preferably somewhere with candlelight and soothing background music. Instead, I turn my attention again to the identity of Mehmet Yilmaz. I had stayed up late last night, again going through the collected writings of Yilmaz. This time, though, I focused on the responses Yilmaz made to questions posted in the security forum used to first announce Cube. As with all the other writing, Yilmaz's answers are well written, with perfect grammar and spelling. It's hard to see how they could have been written by someone for whom English was not their first language. A couple of times, people would ask questions in the forum about Yilmaz's real identity. Yilmaz ignored every one of those questions. Other questions in the same messages would, however, be answered, so it seems clear that Yilmaz deliberately chose not to answer anything related to his or her identity. Another thing that struck me while looking at the responses from Yilmaz were the message timestamps, the times at which Yilmaz sent the messages. Yilmaz's postings were pretty much evenly distributed across the full 24 hours of the day. There seemed to be no clues there as to which time zone he or she might be living in. A thought suddenly occurs to me. Or maybe there's a Yilmaz in every time zone. I turn to Nadia. Could Yilmaz be more than one person? I ask. Nadia stops and looks at me. That's an interesting idea, she says. What made you think of that? It would answer a lot of the puzzling aspects about Cube, I answer. Such as how Yilmaz managed to be an expert in such a diverse range of subjects how the working code could be ready for release so soon after the paper was published, how postings from Yilmaz came at all times of the day and night. Nadia tucks a few strands of hair behind an ear as she thinks. The challenge of keeping a secret amongst a group is much higher than if it is one individual, she answers after some thought. It's not impossible that Yilmaz is more than one person, but it doesn't seem to me to be the most likely explanation. We continue on our way to the dog offices and arrive five minutes later. Buckeridge is there at the entrance to greet us. He's dressed as immaculately as ever, in a grey suit with purple waistcoat. I struggle to remember the last time that I saw someone wear a waistcoat, weddings aside. Welcome, welcome, he booms as he shows us in. I introduce Nadia to him as a friend of Faisa's. Somehow, I can't imagine that Buckeridge, as Max's employer of less than six months, would be too happy to learn that Max is doing work on the side. Enchanté, mademoiselle, says Buckeridge, taking Nadia's hand and kissing it gently. 
Nadia smiles politely at this, but then turns to me and, out of Buckeridge's line of sight, rolls her eyes. I suppress a snigger. Buckeridge leads us into the main conference room. A man's already waiting for us in there. He's dressed casually in polo shirt and jeans. His thinning hair places him, I'd estimate, somewhere in his late thirties or early forties. I'd like to introduce you to Joe Wilson, Buckeridge says. Joe's been with us since the start. We shake hands. Nice to meet you, I say. Joe specialises in online privacy, Buckeridge continues. For the past couple of years, he's been looking at the methods that companies can track users online without their knowledge, without the use of browser cookies. I'm well aware of cookies. These are small files that a website can store on a user's computer and which can uniquely identify the user. Back in the 1990s, individual sites would create their own cookies, but concerns started to be raised a decade later when ad agencies created so-called third-party cookies that could be used to track a user across multiple, completely different websites. Rising concerns about cookies meant that most web browsers have added the ability to block cookies. Some of the browsers even have this functionality turned on by default. The result is that online ad companies have had to find other ways of tracking users. I've been researching SCPL, Side Channel Privacy Leakage, says Joe. I look back at him blankly. I've never heard this term before. I glance at Nadia, and she looks equally baffled. Reacting to our blank expressions, Joe gets up and starts to draw on the conference room's whiteboard. Whenever a user looks up something on the web, their browser is exposing thousands of little pieces of information about their system, says Joe. Things like what browser is being used, its version, what operating system is being used, the size of the browser's window the screen resolution of the computer, the amount of memory it has, and even the speed of the computer's processor. None of these pieces of information by themselves uniquely identifies a computer, continues Joe, but when taken in aggregate, they can uniquely identify a computer nine times out of ten. He pauses to let this stat sink in and then continues. What I've been working on for the past six months is a small piece of JavaScript code that greatly expands the amount of information gathered about the system. With it discreetly embedded into a web page, I can uniquely identify a computer 999 times out of a thousand. I'm impressed, but also alarmed about the implications for privacy. Whereas cookies can be turned off, or regularly cleaned from a browser's cache. This approach requires no action on the part of the user or the user's computer. It just uses information that the browser is supplying as part of its normal operation, enhanced with the results of the JavaScript code. And whilst I suppose you could turn off JavaScript execution on your computer, it's so ubiquitous these days that it is pretty much impossible to use the web without JavaScript being active. Anyway, these are concerns for another day. So how will this help us find Max? asks Nadia. We are going to generate Max's web fingerprints, says Joe. 
will boot this spare laptop up using Max's hard disk. He pulls out of a bag an old battered laptop. It's the exact same model as the one that Max owns. Once we're up and running, continues Joe, we'll go to a custom website that I've set up. This will generate the fingerprint. Joe passes a piece of paper over to us. Printed on it is the URL for a web page hosted on one of the Internet's big cloud computing providers. When this site is accessed, Joe goes on, I can generate the unique fingerprint of Max's computer. I take Max's hard disk out of my jacket pocket and plug it into the laptop. I then start the laptop up, booting from Max's hard disk. We wait what feels like an age, but in the end, a familiar Linux GUI appears on the laptop screen. I then launch Max's favourite web browser and then type in the URL provided by Joe. An innocuously simple web page appears, dominated by a large dog logo. Joe starts to tap away on his laptop. No user action is required to generate the fingerprint, he says as he types. And there's no way a user can block it being generated either. Done. Joe theatrically swivels his laptop round so that its screen is now facing us. Voila! One fingerprint created, says Joe. On his screen is a long string of hexadecimal digits, several lines long. I'm impressed, but still feel that I'm missing the bigger picture. Nadia's puzzled as well. We generated the fingerprint, I get that, Nadia says. But what are we going to compare this fingerprint against? I was wondering when you'd ask that question pipes up Buckeridge, who has been uncharacteristically silent throughout the demonstration. Fancy a drive down to Mountain View? It's time to call in a very, very big favour. Chapter 20. Wednesday Lunchtime. Buckeridge, Nadia and I head down the 101 in a rental car towards Mountain View, the home of the biggest internet search company on the planet. We're going to meet an old friend of Buckeridge's and ask him to do something that, if discovered by his employers, will likely have him fired on the spot and never work anywhere in Silicon Valley again. Despite all of this, Buckeridge seems confident that he will agree to the request. I'm beginning to think that his powers of persuasion must truly be magical. Rather than meet with Buckeridge's friend at his place of work, we've arranged to talk down the road at the Computer History Museum. It's a public venue and big enough that we can talk inside it without fear of being overheard. Like any geek worthy of the name, I've been to the museum a couple of times during visits to the valley. It's been around since the turn of the century and has become one of the biggest technology museums in the world benefiting from substantial donations from many valley-based computer pioneers, both financially and in kind. Buckeridge, Nadia and I arrive at the museum in good time for our rendezvous. The museum is a modern two-storey building, largely constructed from large slabs of white cement. Its carved front is dominated by a large lattice design made of concrete and glass. I stop to admire the design for a moment. It's quite a building, isn't it? says Buckeridge. Definitely, I say. Do you know anything about the building's origins? 
asks Buckeridge. I shake my head. Can't say that I do, I admit. It was built back in the 1980s, answers Buckeridge, for a company called Silicon Graphics. Have you heard of them? Yes, vaguely, I say. They were in the computer visual effects, weren't they? Sort of, says Buckeridge. They made high-end graphical workstations back in the 80s and 90s. When commodity PCs became powerful enough to do professional visual effects, their market collapsed. Very few people remember them now. This building is one of the few remaining tangible pieces of evidence that they ever existed. Very sad, I say. I like taking CEOs here, particularly those of startups that have been successful, continues Buckeridge. They think they're invincible, that they cannot fail. I tell them the story of this building as a way of reminding them about the transient nature of most Silicon Valley companies. As we're early, we kill time by browsing around the main exhibits. Nadia professes to having never visited the museum before and seems particularly impressed by the mechanical recreation of Babbage's analytical engine, the design for which is regarded by many as the very first computer design. As the hour for the rendezvous approaches, Buckeridge and I move over into the visible storage display room. Nadia remains in the main part of the museum, keeping a discreet lookout. The VSD room is a cavernous space containing hundreds of antique computers and associated peripherals. The smaller computers are stacked neatly on wire shelves, together with labels that list the computer's year of release and a few other salient details. The larger computers are laid out on the floor. Their bulk lends the room a maze-like quality. There are a plethora of pathways through the room. This makes it perfect for a clandestine meeting. We browse around the room, pretending to look at various machines. There are only a couple of other people in the room with us, far away on the other side. Another advantage of the VSD room is that it's much less popular than the other parts of the museum. Maybe it is just me, but there's something morbid about the room. None of the computers are powered up. Most of them likely wouldn't work if they were, so the whole place has the feel of a graveyard. It feels like the room is full of carcasses of dead computers, no hint of the important jobs they once performed. As we walk down an aisle bordered by two tall sets of shelves, a man approaches us. He is stoutly built, of similar age to Buckeridge, with a greying beard and an equally greying ponytail. He's wearing a pair of well-worn jeans, together with equally worn cowboy boots and a faded check shirt. A pair of spectacles at least ten years out of style completes his attire. The man stops and holds his hand out to Buckeridge. It's good to see you, H.B., he says quietly. His accent sounds Midwestern. Buckeridge shakes his hand. And you, he says. He gestures in my direction. This is Tom, he says. The man nods to acknowledge me. Um, continues Buckeridge. It's probably best if Tom doesn't know your name. You know, just in case. Agreed, the man says, nodding again. Buckeridge goes on. 
One of my employees has disappeared, and we're desperately worried for his safety. I've had his web fingerprint generated. We need it compared with as much web traffic as possible in all geographic regions. Buckeridge opens his hand to reveal memory stick. On here is the fingerprint, along with the JavaScript code to generate the data points. What can you do? he asks. The man scratches his beard, deep in thought for a moment. He lets out a long sigh. Hell, Buckeridge, when you call in favours, you really call them in, he says. I can get this on the main search page for a week, perhaps two at the absolute max. He takes the memory stick from Buckeridge's hand and pockets it in his jeans. Buckeridge lets out a sigh of relief. Thank you, he says. This means the world to me. But who visits search pages anymore, I ask. Doesn't everyone these days just put search queries into their browser's address box? The man flashes me a smile. Why do you think we put so much effort into creating the doodles, he says. He winks at me and then turns and moves off. He spends a further token five minutes looking at the exhibits and then saunters out of the room. He has much work to do back at the office. Wow, I say, turning to Buckeridge. Do you think he'll be able to do what he promised? Absolutely, says Buckeridge confidently. The less you know about him, the better. But know this, he will do exactly what we asked him to do, and he will get it done without being detected. Within 24 hours, Max's fingerprint will be being compared with the hundreds of millions of internet users who visit the search page every day. Now, let's find our lady friend and head back to San Francisco. Chapter 21. Wednesday Afternoon. The three of us drive back to San Francisco. After dropping Buckeridge off at Dorg, Nadia and I return to Sutter Street. Back at the flat, Faser listens intently to our description of the events of the morning. Then she asks, So, this will allow us to track Max if he comes online? Hopefully, yes, I say. If Max does a web search from his laptop, we should get a match. It's not guaranteed, but Buckeridge and co. seem to think that it's a better than 50-50 chance. Faser nods, processing all of the news. She herself has been out all morning looking for Max, the old-fashioned way, handing out lots of flyers, doing lots of talking, and even more walking. I'm about to go into more detail when Iris starts whispering in my ear. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mr Jenkins, she says. You have an incoming video call via the Ironstar application. Do you want to answer? Ironstar? I'd forgotten that I had installed that on my band. It's a secure video conferencing program, encrypting all video and audio feeds. I downloaded it a few months ago, back when I was evaluating encrypted communication technologies on behalf of the bank. I must have never gotten round to uninstalling it. I wonder about who might be calling me. I can't recall having told anyone my Ironstar ID. A sudden surge of hope hits me. Could it be Max? Yes, Iris, answer please, I respond hurriedly. I excuse myself and step into the bathroom to take the call. I unwrap my band from my wrist and prop it up on the side of the sink. Two faces, 
both male, appear on the screen. I recognise one of them. He was the first of the two men that we spoke to at the commune the other day. The other man, I don't know. He's at least fifteen years older than me, judging by the grey hairs and wrinkles around the eyes. Although, having said all that, there is something that is familiar about him. I get the strong feeling that I've seen him somewhere before. The younger man speaks up. Hello, Tom. You remember me, I hope. I do indeed, I reply. It's Richard, isn't it? That's right, he replies. I was hoping that you might have had some luck in locating your friend Max. Have you found him? No, I'm afraid not, I say. Though it's not been for the lack of effort, I can tell you. Why do you ask? Richard hesitates, as if embarrassed by what he's about to say. He then starts to speak. When you visited, you asked me whether I had seen your friend. Well, I'm sorry to say that I wasn't quite honest with you. I did recognise Max in the photo. He visited the commune a week or so ago. When he left, he told us all to let no one know about his visit. When you turned up, we felt duty-bound to honour that request. I fight the urge to get angry. Anger is not going to get me any new information on Max's whereabouts. So, what caused the change of heart? I ask. Why call me now with this information? That was my doing, says the other man. I need to speak with Max as soon as possible. This is David Sams, says Richard, gesturing at the other man. Dave's been working out of the commune regularly ever since it opened. He turned up this afternoon asking if we knew Max's whereabouts. As Max didn't leave any contact details when he departed us, we thought you might have had some luck in locating him. As I said, unfortunately not, I respond. Sam's shoulders slump in disappointment. Max works for Dorg, right? asks Sam's. I nod my head. Yes, he's an employee of theirs. The executive director, Heath Buckeridge, has been helping us try to find him. I pause for a moment. So why do you need to talk with Max so urgently? I ask. I know that Max was investigating Cube, answers Sam's. I've been investigating, and here I struggle to understand what he's saying, the Typhoo database, and came across some recent extensions that worried me. I don't have all the answers yet, though. I thought that Max could help me piece things together. What's Typhoo? I ask. And what's it got to do with Cube? The man shakes his head firmly. Not Typhoo. I said the Typhoon database, he says firmly. T-Y-P-H-O-O-N. He virtually spits the individual letters of the acronym out at me. Richard gives a polite little cough. Anyway, I can't say any more over this line. We may already be being monitored, Sam says. Let me get my notes together and we can meet face to face tomorrow. Come up to Sebastopol in the morning. We'll meet downtown somewhere. I know. The Roasted Bean Coffee Shop, 11am. Don't be late. Without waiting for me to acknowledge the details of the rendezvous, Sam's reaches to turn the webcam off. The call ends. I come out of the bathroom. 
Both Faiser and Nadia look at me with puzzled expressions, wondering why I'm beaming from ear to ear. Looks like our trip up to Sonoma was more successful than we thought, I say triumphantly. Max did visit that commune. And someone else has arrived there, asking for Max. Chapter 22, Thursday Morning Straight after breakfast, Faser and I head off up the 101 on the 50-odd mile drive to Sebastopol. Nadia has volunteered to stay behind and put up more posters. She seems to be making a concerted effort to get back into Faser's good books. I wonder whether she's doing it because she wants to re-earn Faser's trust, or to get Faser to ease up on me. Whatever her reason, it does seem to have improved Faser's mood somewhat. Nadia and I have talked little over the past two days, and nothing about what happened on Monday night. I'm wondering how she feels about it now. Is she regretting our getting together? While she certainly seemed to enjoy it at the time, does she view it as a one-off, or does she see us as a couple in the future? I really can't tell from the way that she acts towards me. She's a hard woman to read. Faser's bladder needs regular emptying, so after half an hour of driving, we stop off at a gas station that has a toilet. As we get ready to head off again afterwards, Faser turns to me in the car. I'm sorry about how I acted the other day, she says. About you and Nadia? That's okay, I tell her. I was almost as surprised as you were when it happened. It's just... Faser hesitates and then continues... Just that you getting together with Nadia brought back some painful memories for me. I turn round in the car seat to look at her. Painful? What do you mean? I ask. Faiza sighs and pauses before answering. It was a while back. Max and I had been arguing earlier that day, and that evening I went out for drinks with a group of male friends from the university. I was annoyed at Max. The university course workload was immense, and I needed to let off some steam. I drank more than I should have. One thing led to another, and I ended up spending the night with one of them. I'm stunned. You mean you had an affair? I ask, incredulously. No, nothing as formal as that, says Faser. It was only one night. I regretted it immediately. Does Max know about this? I ask. Yes, he knows, Faser says, lowering her gaze. He, I had to let him know. Why, I say. It was six months ago, Faser answers. I stare back at her blankly, none the wiser. I don't get it, I say. To be precise, it was thirty-one weeks ago, Faser says. The penny drops. You mean that your baby, I say, might not be Max's? Yes, says Faser. We don't know for sure. We'll find out when the baby's born, I guess. I now understand just why Max and Faser were so reluctant to tell their families about the impending birth. How does Max feel, I ask. He was hurt by what I did, of course, Faser answers and that he may not be the biological father of my baby. But he said that it would make no difference to how much he would love the child. He said that he loved me, 
and that he would love our baby. I nod my head. That matches how I figure Max would react to this situation. And does the other guy know, I say? Faser shakes her head. No, he doesn't, she says. I haven't seen him since the... since that night. As soon as I knew that I was pregnant, I pulled out of university. Max and I have agreed to do a paternity test after the birth. Based on the result of that, we'll decide who else needs to know, and what. She reaches out and touches my hand. I'd appreciate it if you told no one else, she says. Not even Nadia. Of course, I tell her. You have my word. Faser pulls her arm back. Thank you, she whispers. I press the car's ignition, get into gear, and reverse out of the parking bay. We continue up the 101. We pull into the municipal car park in Sebastopol just after 10.30am. We're in good time for our meeting with Richard and David. We leave the car and stroll over to the coffee shop. I order a tall coffee, black. Faser chooses a herbal tea. The coffee shop is relatively quiet at this hour and we're able to get a table to ourselves over on the side. So, says Faser, where do you want to start with the questions when our guests arrive? First, we need to establish the timing of Max's visit to the commune, I reply. When he arrived, when he left. Then we can get into what he did while he was there and who he talked with. And whether he said anything about where he was going next, Faser adds. I nod in agreement. Nadia tells me that no one knows who created Cube, Faisa says, changing the subject. Is that correct? Yes, it's true, I answer. The original paper describing it and the software that followed shortly afterwards were released by someone using the pseudonym Mehmet Yilmaz. Why was this never big news? asks Faser. It's a good question, I answer. I've been thinking a lot about that myself. When the Cube white paper was first published by Yilmaz, I don't think that people realised that it was a pseudonym. Most probably, they assumed that the name was real. Once people did realise that it was a pseudonym, well, Yilmaz was still active at the time in the forums, and so it didn't seem to matter very much. People might not know the person's real identity, but they could still interact with him or her, ask them questions, get responses. It wouldn't have seemed that unusual. Lots of people use only login screen names for their online activities, like Nadia going by Nero online, for example. Then, Yilmaz stopped posting to the forums. But it was done with no fanfare. The postings just stopped. There was no I'm-stepping-down-now valedictory message. It took folk a couple of months to realise that Yilmaz had stopped posting. By then, Cube's popularity had really taken off. It was getting lots of attention, but it was all focused on Cube itself, the design of the protocol and the software implementing it. As all of the code had been made open source, people could inspect it for themselves and decide whether or not they wanted to use it as an online currency. Lots of journalists have tried to find Yomaz, and some have claimed to have found him. But none of the people put forward have stood up to serious scrutiny. 
None of them display even close to the degree of genius required to have created Cube by themselves. Faiza frowns. I keep hearing you and Nadia and others say that Cube is brilliant, she says. What exactly is it about Cube's design that is so special? Iris whispers in my ear that the time is 10.45am. Not long to wait now. Cube is the first currency in history whose architecture is completely distributed, I reply. Every other electronic payment system previous to Cube has required some form of central body to process payments and make sure that no one tries to spend money that isn't actually theirs. Instead, Cube has a common workspace that is shared by all the computers running the central Cube software. Within this workspace is the global ledger that records every single verified Cube transaction. This ledger is open to everyone to view, and in principle, to contribute pages to. In order to implement the global ledger successfully, Yilmaz had to find a way to ensure that all of this distributed processing could be done reliably. Some of the systems running the Cube software may be defective. They might make mistakes that could corrupt the ledger. Worse, rogue systems could deliberately attempt to insert false transactions or amend existing ones. Yilmaz had to find a way to solve a challenge that in computer science is known as the Byzantine General's Problem. Faser looks at me blankly. I scribble a quick diagram on a napkin and slide it across the table. The Byzantine armies are planning to attack a heavily fortified city, I say, gesturing at the castle in the middle of the diagram. The armies, each led by a general, are camped out around the city and are geographically separated from each other. The generals have the problem of agreeing a common time to attack the city. The city is defended well enough that if the attack is not coordinated, it will fail. The generals can send messengers to each other, but messengers may be captured en route. To make matters worse, some of the generals may be traitors to the Byzantine cause. They will attempt to disrupt the communication between the other divisions and perhaps feed wrong information. So the challenge facing the generals is how to come up with a communication process that allows them to agree on a common time of attack, but which is robust enough to cope with messages not being received and traitorous generals sending wrong information. The scenario was first defined back in the 1980s as an analogy for the problem of getting distributed computers to communicate successfully, even in situations where some of the systems were faulty and feeding wrong or corrupt information to the others. Yilmaz had to come up with a solution to this problem in order to make Cube work. His approach can best be described as emergent consensus, where consensus arises as a result of the interactions of thousands of independent citizen systems, all running the Cube software and maintaining the global ledger. Each of these systems independently verifies each transaction as well as every new page that is added to the ledger. Each system effectively votes on which is the true version of the ledger. Consensus comes through what the majority of the systems decide, each of them deciding independently of the rest. You can think of Cube as a perfect implementation of the wisdom of crowds. 
as long as the majority of the cube systems are honest, any attempt to subvert the currency will fail. I glance up at the clock on the wall. It's now five past eleven. They really should be here by now. Mehmet Ilmaz is an interesting choice of pseudonym, muses Faiza. I know, I say. It's effectively a Turkish non-name. They are equivalent to the British John Smith or the US John Doe. The choice of it suggests that the identity of the cube's creator isn't important. Oh, I wasn't meaning that, replies Faiza. I was thinking of how the world's first ever coinage came from Turkey. Really? I say, surprised. The first metal coins were made in the kingdom of Lydia, answers Faiza, which today forms part of the western provinces of Turkey. Trust me, as a business student, I've learned more than a thing or two about money. She pauses, thinking for a moment, then continues. Maybe Mehmet Yilmaz was chosen by the creator, as they felt that cube is as big a step forward for money as metal coinage was 3,000 years ago. I rub my chin. Could be, I answer. That can be one of our questions for David when he gets here. Iris whispers in my ear that it's 11.15am. Where are they? I get Iris to call Richard via Ironstar, but there's no answer. We continue to wait. By 11.30, I am definitely feeling stood up. I try calling Richard again and still get no response. Let's drive over to the commune, suggests Faiza. Maybe we'll catch them there. Chapter 23 Half an hour later, we pull up outside the commune. There's no one about outside, so we decide to go in. The kitchen is unoccupied, but at first glance looks much as it did when we last visited. The sink is still full of unwashed plates and bowls. Then I notice the rack of rooters beside the door. Last time we were here, they were a mass of flickering green light. Now they are lightless, their fans silent. I flick the light switch beside the door. No lights come on. Electricity's off, I remark. I walk over to the kitchen's other door and open it. Hello! I shout down the corridor. Anyone at home? Silence. I turn to Faser. I'm going to take a look around, I say. You can stay. We stick together, says Faser firmly. I'm coming with you. I nod. Okay, if that's what you want, I say. Not knowing what to expect, I step into the corridor, Faiza following just behind me. We open the first door we come to, the one that leads into the office. Unlike the kitchen, this room looks very different to when we last visited. The place appears as if a tornado has blown through it, pulling down everything that has been stacked on the bookshelves or the desk, and hurling it unceremoniously onto the carpet. The entire floor space is several inches deep in books, binders and other papers, making it difficult to walk. Faiza looks around in puzzlement. What on earth happened here? she asks. 
Not sure, I say, equally puzzled. Looks like someone ransacked the place. Phaser clambers over the mounds of books and looks around the other side of the desk. She picks up a ring-bound notebook that is lying on top of one of the piles. Half of the pages in the notebook have been torn out, leaving only blank pages remaining. Maybe they were looking for something, she says. I wonder what. It's then that I realise another change to the room. The desktop PCs that had been placed under the desk are gone. Their power cables are still there, but the machines themselves have vanished. I point the disappearance out to Phaser. She bends down and examines the carpet closely where the machines were placed. They've only been very recently removed, she says. The carpet's still indented where their cases push down into it. Let's keep looking around, I suggest. Phaser nods and we leave. The next door we try opens on to a large L-shaped lounge area, furnished with a couple of sofas and low tables. There are windows along one whole wall of the sitting room, looking out onto a small garden. A pair of multi-paned French doors permit access to the outside. There's a strange smell to the air. It's a sweet smell, not exactly unpleasant, but one that I'm certain I've never encountered before. Phaser notices it too. What on earth is that? she says, wrinkling her nose. No idea, I say, shaking my head. Phaser walks over to the French doors. She examines one of the doors. A pane's been smashed, she says. And what's this? she asks, her attention now drawn to something by her feet. I walk over to her and take a look. On the carpet, amidst broken glass, is a small grey cylinder, about 30 centimetres in length. One end has a valve. I crouch down and gingerly pick it up. The canister has only a few markings on it, none of them I recognise. I give it a cautious sniff and confirm that it is the source of the strange smell. What do you think it is? whispers Phaser. I shrug my shoulders. Some kind of gas, but I don't know what exactly, I whisper back. Is it dangerous? says Phaser, her hands instinctively moving too, and clutching her belly. I shake my head. I hope not, I say, trying to reassure her. But let's keep a close eye on each other. If either of us starts acting strangely, let's get out of here. You got it, says Phaser. She bends down again and looks at the broken glass. Judging by where the glass fell, the canister must have been fired by somewhere over there, she says, gesturing towards a tree on one side of the garden. Taking the canister with us, we head out of the sitting room. We've now explored all of the ground floor, leaving us only the stairs leading to the upper floor and steps down to the basement. I'm just about to ask Phaser whether she wants to go up or down, when suddenly, from somewhere above us, there comes a sound. We both stop and listen intently. The noise repeats. It's quiet, but it is unmistakably the sound of tapping. Something's knocking, says Phaser, staring at the ceiling. Or someone, I say. 
Let's go find out. We head up the stairs. At the top is another corridor, with doors on both sides. At the end is an open door, leading into a bathroom. We open the first door and look inside. It's a small bedroom, with a window that looks out on the garden. Apart from the bed, there's a small wardrobe and a desk. The pillows and duvet of the bed are scattered on the floor. Lying on the floor beside the window is another grey canister. I go over and pick it up. It's identical to the one we found downstairs. Judging by where the glass is lying, the canister was fired from the same location too. Faser puts her hand down on the side of the desk and then pulls it back sharply. She looks at her hand and then the desk. Blood, she says, holding her hand out to me to see. Someone hit the side of this desk hard. Very hard. She wipes her hand clean with a tissue. Whoever broke into the house must have encountered resistance, I answer. Maybe this gas was intended to subdue, but not everyone was affected. We hear the tapping noise again. This time it's much closer, just across the corridor from us. I walk across and open the door. It's another bedroom, much like the one we were just in. Equally empty of people too. I check the wardrobe to make sure that no one is hiding there, but find nothing. As I'm puzzling over the source of the tapping, the sound occurs again, and I realise its cause. The window of the bedroom is slightly ajar and is periodically being made to bump against its frame by the wind from outside. So it was just a window we heard, sighs Faser. I guess someone likes fresh air while they sleep. Maybe, I say, examining the window. It's a large window, maybe large enough to climb out of. I open the window fully and lean out. Below me is a small roof that is on top of a side porch. And beside me, I reach outside and pull something that is stuck to a nail embedded in the frame of the window. It comes free in my hand. I examine it closely. It's a scrap of fabric possibly from a shirt or a jacket. I show it to Faser. I think someone tried to use the window to escape, I say. I wonder if they succeeded, Faser replies. We look around the rest of the top floor. We find some more bedrooms, a few more canisters, but no more clues as to what happened. Faser has the pee again, so she checks out the bathroom, but finds nothing. That leaves only the basement to search. It's dark down there, but I'm able to find a couple of working flashlights in a cupboard in the kitchen. Going down the stairs, Faser is a step or two in front of me. She gets to the bottom of the stairs and then starts to look around with her flashlight. Suddenly she stops. Her hands go to her mouth and she screams. At the far end of the basement lie multiple dead bodies. They are bound hand and feet. I rush to Faser and she turns and buries her head in my chest, sobbing. I try to be manly and cool, but it's all I can do to not throw up. After a few moments, Faser's sobs subside. She pulls away from me. I'm going outside, she says. 
Can you check for me whether Max is here? I mean, is one of the bodies? I nod as reassuringly as I can. Of course, I say. I'll be out in a few moments. Phaser leaves the cellar, and I am alone with the corpses. I start the grim task of examining them. There are five men and one woman. They're lightly dressed in nightwear, T-shirts and shorts mostly. Whatever happened must have occurred during the night. One by one, I look at the bodies. Two of the corpses are Richard and Tim. The other bodies I don't recognise. There's no sign of Sam's, nor of Max. Strangely, there are no immediate signs of the cause of death. I cannot find any bullet marks, or any other kind of mark, for that matter, anywhere. There is something strange, though, about the bodies, and it takes me a while to realise what it is. It's their eyes. All of the corpse's pupils are massively overdilated. I can barely see their irises at all. I'm pondering the significance of this when Iris alerts me to an incoming call. Fire Ironstar. I tell her to answer it and unwind my band from my wrist. Sam's face appears on the screen of my band. He is a mess. He's got a deep cut down one side of his face and his jaw is puffy and discoloured. He's going to get you, he says, before I have a chance to say anything. I'm sorry, I don't understand, I respond, confused. I said, he's going to get you, Sams repeats. Who's going to get me, I say. I don't know what you're talking about. Christoph, of course, he says. He pauses, looking at me, waiting for a reaction. Who? I ask. Alexei Christoph, Sams repeats. He and his brat fur cronies stormed the commune last night, looking for me. I only just managed to escape. He touches his swollen jaw delicately, wincing as he does so. All things considered, I got off pretty lightly, he continues. I don't know who you're talking about, I tell him, puzzled. I've never met anyone by that name. Sams stares at me for ten long seconds. Finally, he responds. Well, either you're lying, in which case you're the bastard who tipped him off about my location, or you're telling the truth and you're an innocent bystander in all of this. Doesn't really matter which. Either way, he'll hunt you down. Why? I ask. Well, if you're working with him, then he'll have you killed so you won't confess all to the authorities. And even if you are innocent, then he'll still come after you, as he'll want to find out what you know about the whereabouts of your friend, and everything you found out about Cube. Once he knows what you know, he'll kill you. As I said, whatever your situation, he's going to come after you and kill you. He never leaves loose ends. I put my hands up in mock surrender. I'm sorry. I promise you that I don't know who this Christoph is. I certainly haven't been talking to him about your whereabouts or anything else, I tell him. Sams narrows his eyes while continuing to stare at me. 
Finally, he continues, It's possible, just possible, that you're telling the truth. In which case, my advice is to get as far from California as possible. Hide. And hope that he'll lose interest in you before he finds you. He probably won't. But at least you'll live out whatever days are left to you in the naive belief that things will turn out okay. I understand, I tell him. But until I find Max, I'm not leaving. Commendable, replies Sam's. Courageous even, but stupid, very stupid. The longer you remain in California, the more likely that Christoph will find you. Meeting him will not be pleasant, I can promise you. Why is he after you? I ask. Because I'm one of the people who invented Cube, replies Sams calmly. I quit a long time ago, but he thinks that I can still lead him to the rest of the guys. Yes, I think to myself. My hunch was right. Suddenly, everything falls into place. The accidental variations in spacing, the responses to forum messages at all times of the day and night, the need for Yilmaz to be a virtuoso polymath of unrivaled breadth and depth. These pieces all fit together now. If Cube was the work of more than one individual, then these questions all have easy answers. Sam's glances at his watch. I have to go now, he says. I'm getting on a plane in 20 minutes. I've got tickets booked under a fake name with new passport, credit cards, the lot. I'm leaving the US for somewhere a long way away. Somewhere Christoph won't be able to find me easily. I've been running from him for almost 10 years now. I've learned how to disappear. I'm very good at it. You won't hear from me again unless you find your friend. I won't talk to anyone other than him. And, just like that, he hangs up. I'm about to resume searching the bodies when Phaser appears at the top of the stairs. Someone's coming, she yells. Fear clutches my heart. Sam's words echo through my head. He never leaves loose ends. I sprint up the steps and dash outside. Phaser points at a cloud of dust on the dirt track to the house. A car's coming this way, she shouts. We need to hide now, I tell her. It may be the Bratfar. We race over to our car and I reverse it into the largest of the outbuildings. I shut the doors of the shed and we peer through a couple of holes in the wood panelling. We wait, hardly daring to breathe as the sound of the car gets closer and closer. Phaser hides beside me. Did you? she whispers. Did you find Max? No, I whisper back. No sign of him. I did recognise a couple of the bodies. Tim was one of them. But the rest I don't know. Phaser is about to ask another question, but is interrupted by the sound of the car pulling up outside the farmhouse. I peer through a hole in the wood panelling of the building. It's a black highway patrol police car. Its doors open and two officers climb out. I start to let out a sigh of relief, but the breath dies in my throat as I realise that the policemen are the two thugs Nadia and I encountered in Iceland. 
I nudged Faser. They're not real cops. These are the men who chased Nadia and me in Iceland, I say. We watch as one of them walks round to the rear of the car, looks around quickly, and then opens the back door. He reaches in and pulls out a large jerry can. The container appears to be full, judging by the way that he has to lift it out with both hands. As he pulls it from the car, the can slips from his hands and it falls onto the ground with a large thump. The other man swears at him and pushes him in the shoulder as a reproach for his carelessness. The first man pushes him right back and unleashes a lengthy and sweary tirade at him. Tweedledum and Tweedledee, whispers Faser to me. Both men kneel down and inspect the state of the jerry can. Satisfied that it's intact, they pick it up between them and carry it into the kitchen. Let's get out of here while they're busy inside, I whisper to Faser. She nods. As quietly as I can, I open the doors of the shed again and creep over to the men's car. Being careful to stay on the side of the police car furthest from the house, I pull out a quarter coin from my pocket and let down both the front and back tyres as quietly as I can. Then I hustle back to the shed and get in our car alongside Phaser. I press the ignition and floor the accelerator. The car bursts from the outhouse and onto the dirt track. We don't stop until we reach the main road. Then we pause and look back to see if we're being chased. Look! Smoke! shouts Phaser, pointing. I turn around and see a plume of black smoke rising into the sky. The commune, high on the hill, is ablaze. Flames lap around the edge of the roof. There's nothing we can do. I floor the accelerator again and we head off towards the 101. Chapter 24 Soon we're back on the highway heading towards San Francisco. We sit in shocked silence, both of us trying to come to terms with what we've just seen. My hands are shaking so I decide to let the car do the driving just this once. As we speed south, we pass a couple of CHP cars parked on the side of the road, the police officers standing together beside them, chatting. All of them are wearing sunglasses. Their heads turn to watch us as we pass, their expressions inscrutable. I feel my stomach churn with fear, but the policemen do nothing more and return to talking between themselves after we have passed. For the next few minutes, I keep glancing behind to see if they are following us, but see nothing. I try to focus on what we should do next, but my mind keeps returning to the events at the commune. Images of the dead bodies, particularly their sightless eyes, flash repeatedly into my head. I shake my head to clear these thoughts and focus on what we now know. The Bratva is active here in California, is well equipped and is willing to use lethal force to achieve its aims. I think about the way that the commune had been ransacked, most notably the missing computers. And not just ones in the office. Phaser and I didn't find a single computer, be it smartphone, tablet, band or laptop, anywhere in the house. The presumption has to be that the Bratva took them all, 
looking for information on them about Cube. I think back to the video calls with Sam's. Why did he seem familiar to me? I'm sure that I've never met him before in my life. I'm quite good with faces. So how come I feel that I've seen him before? I think about conferences and trade shows that I've attended, webcasts that I've watched, but can't think where I might have encountered him before. I'm still musing on this as the car arrives in San Francisco and pulls up outside the apartment building. We get out, and the car races off for its next booking. We climb up the stairs to the apartment. Just as Phaser is unlocking the front door, an image flashes into my head. I know where I've seen Sam's before. I dash over to Max's desk in the sitting room, pull open the lower drawer, and grab the photocopied restaurant photo lying inside. I inspect the group photograph closely. Sure enough, sitting at the front of the booth, closest to the camera, is Sam's. He's much younger in the photo, at least 15 years by my estimation, but it's definitely him. He is one of the two faces circled in red. I brandish the photo and show it to Faser. I knew I'd seen Sam somewhere before, I tell her proudly. He's in this picture that Max had. Faser takes the photo from me and looks at it. I believe you, she says. What about the other people? Do you recognise any of them? I retrieve the photo from her and take another long look at the other faces. Finally, I shake my head. No, I don't, I say. None of the bodies in the commune were any of these men. I take another look at Sam's in the photo. As I do so, a nagging feeling grows within me that I've encountered his name before somewhere, not connected with the photo. I rack my brains trying to figure out where. Then I remember. I quickly pull my laptop out of my bag and wake it from sleep. I open the VM that I've created with Max's data and go to the Kronos directory. I open each one of the half-dozen academic papers that Max has stored there. There, amongst them, is one authored by a David P. Sams. It's a brief but dense paper on peer-to-peer -peer communication, written nearly 20 years ago when Sams was a PhD candidate at Stanford University. Faser leans over my shoulder and looks at the paper. It's got to be the same person, right? She says. It would be a mighty coincidence if it weren't, I tell her. Another idea suddenly strikes me. I look through the rest of the papers and write down the names of the authors. Suresh Natar, Ben Orson, James Oswald and Peter Collins. One by one, I do internet searches for images of them. Nothing significant comes up until I do the search for Collins. The first page of pictures contains an image that matches the other man circled in the photo. So, is this a photo of the creators of Cube? Faser muses. Could be, I say, nodding absent-mindedly. I stare at the restaurant photo. It's telling us something else, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Then it comes to me. There are seven people in this photo, I shout. Yes, well done. I can count up to seven too, says Faser. No, you don't understand, I say. So has Kronos. And? asks Faser, still not getting my meaning. I grab a pen 
and some paper and write down the names. Collins, H, R, Orson, Natar, Oswald, Sams. Kronos is the name of the group who created Cube, I say excitedly. It's an acronym made from their surnames. Chapter 25 Thursday afternoon Nadia arrives back at the flat mid-afternoon. She slumps down wearily on the sofa and takes her boots off. For the first time since I've met her, she actually appears tired. I've been all over the marina district, she says, rubbing her feet. There's not a street there I haven't walked today, asking people about Max. Her tiredness, though, evaporates as soon as Faiza and I start to recount our experiences of the day. She looks shocked when I explain the state of the commune that we found, particularly the dead bodies. I pass to her one of the canisters that we found, and she examines it closely. Definitely Bratva, she says, pointing at the lettering on the side. This is Russian. What do you think the gas was? asks Faiza. Nadia takes a sniff around the canister's valve. Knockout gas, she says confidently. Military grade, designed to incapacitate within seconds. The people in the commune wouldn't have stood a chance against it. When I get to the bit about the two from Iceland turning up in a CHP police car, Nadia winces. See, I told you, we cannot trust the police. Best handle this ourselves. She brightens up when we get to our discovery of the additional members of Kronos. That's brilliant, she says, reaching out and patting my thigh. I should have known that you'd identify more of the team. Unfortunately, the trail goes cold from there, I explain. Before you got back, Faser and I investigated these other members of Kronos. It's very strange. All of them left the companies or universities that they worked for within a few years of Cube being launched and just disappeared without a trace. We can't find any recent details on any of them. Employment, home addresses, contact phone numbers, email, etc. So the mystery deepens, muses Nadia, thinking hard. We now have five missing men, not just one. Look, Faiza says suddenly, holding out her tablet that she's been reading. On the screen is an article from a local Sebastopol newspaper. Tragedy as Morningstar Commune burns to the ground. Reading through the article, it seems as if the local authorities are treating the fire as accidental. The journalist mentions that the fire is thought to have been caused by an electrical fault that led to fuel tanks in the basement used to power the commune's backup generator catching a light. The article mentions that the final death toll is, as yet, unknown, but estimates that at least five or six people were in the building at the time of the fire. Nadia reads the article, then shakes her head. The Bratva is very good at covering its tracks, she says. Once they had what they needed, they will have made sure to destroy everything and make it seem accidental. As I'm thinking this over, my band vibrates with an incoming call. I excuse myself and answer it. It's Buckeridge. 
Good afternoon, dear boy," he says at his usual jet engine taking off volume. "Well, hello to you too, sir," I reply. "I just wanted to give you an update on the situation down at Mountain View," says Buckovich. "Our friend has installed the package and is monitoring the output. He will alert us to any matches found." I notice that Buckovich is talking very obliquely, cryptically even. Is he worried that our phone calls are being monitored? Thank you, I say. That's great news. Mustache, says Buckeridge. Give my regards to your lady friend. He starts to say. I remember something from the conversation with Sam's and interrupt him. Do you know what typhoon is? I ask. Buckeridge pauses, thinking. Typhoon? Can't say that I do, he says. I think it's some kind of database. I say. A database called Typhoon muses Buckeridge more to himself than to me. No, doesn't ring any bells. I'll ask around though and see if anyone else has heard of it. He pauses for a moment, then continues. Now you must excuse me. I'm late for my next meeting. I'll let you know if I find out anything. He hangs up. I re-enter the flat. That was Buckeridge. I say, the web fingerprint monitoring has been activated. Great, says Faiza. What now? Now we wait. I say, I'm feeling much more optimistic due to Buckeridge's call. Every hour, hundreds of millions of visitors to the search website are having their web fingerprints generated and compared to the one we produced for Max's laptop. Somewhere among those millions, there has to be our Max. He's got to be out there somewhere, right? Chapter twenty-six. We spend all day on Friday waiting to hear from Buckeridge. Of course, we go out and put up flyers and talk with people in San Francisco, but it's really just to occupy ourselves. Not one of us believes that Max is anywhere near San Francisco now. Buckeridge calls late on Friday evening, but only to say that there have been no matches to date. On Thursday, Dorg had given over the front page of their website to a photo of Max, together with a plea for anyone who's seen him to contact them immediately. Faiza thanks Buckeridge most sincerely for doing this. We go through the same routine on Saturday and Sunday. Each day, we go out to search and ask around. Every evening, Buckeridge calls, saying that there's been no progress. A couple of SF-based tech journalists, spotting Max's photo on the Dorg website, call Phaser up for more details and were able to get a couple of articles about Max posted on some of the tech websites. I see a few Sonoma County news articles about the commune burning down too. Everyone is treating it as simply a tragic accident. Outside of the local press, no one else seems to pick up on it. Not even the San Francisco tech press, who I would have thought would be interested in stories like this, give it more than a passing mention. No one really seems to care. On Monday, I receive a call from my boss in London, asking me if I'm ever planning on returning to work, or should he just post a job advertisement he's prepared for my replacement straight away. I have to admit that I panic at this less than subtle threat. I promise that I'll be wrapping things up before the end of the week, 
and will fly back to London over the weekend. My boss sounds satisfied with this, but he makes it clear that he's expecting to see me at my desk first thing the following Monday, or else. Unfortunately, things don't wrap up. We continue to search every day, of course, but we find nothing. All our leads on Max have gone cold. I start to understand what it must feel like to be caught in an infinite loop. Buckeridge checks in regularly with his associate, but there's never any news. Concerned that the browser fingerprinting isn't working correctly, Buckeridge has his team generate the fingerprint for a computer in their possession and passes the details on to his associate. They then go and make some web searches. Immediately, the fingerprint is matched, showing that the implementation of the fingerprinting is sound. The SFPD aren't much help either. All that they can suggest we do now is to contact the British consulate. The consulate is little help either. All they can propose is adding Max's details to their list of missing persons that they maintain on their website. The end of a tiring and fruitless week comes round all too quickly. I'm faced with little option but to head back to the UK. Nadia says that she can stay a couple of days more, but will then have to travel back to Poland. I did float the possibility of her coming back to London with me, but this offer is graciously but firmly declined. I fly back on the Saturday night, arriving into London early on Sunday morning. The city seems much greyer than when I left it just two weeks previously. The leaves are all off the trees now, and with a cold wind blowing off the North Sea, winter doesn't feel that far off. The days are noticeably shorter and the nights longer. Christmas decorations and lights have appeared in the streets, but I'm not feeling in the least bit Christmassy. I go back to my flat, lie on my bed and stare at the ceiling. I think about Max. I go through all the steps we'd taken and what we could have done differently. I replay in my head all the conversations I've had with people about Max. I torment myself thinking about what I could have said or done that might have made a difference. Was Max in the commune when we pulled up in the car? If so, could we have said something then that would have made him reveal himself? I'm not used to failing. School was easy. University was tougher, but I was able to succeed by trying harder. Work was tough at first. There was a lot to learn, particularly the soft skills of being part of a team. But I mastered it pretty quickly. This is different. Of course, I failed at inconsequential things in the past, mainly sport-related. But this is the first time that I've failed at something that I've really cared about. I tell myself that however bad it is for me, it must be ten times worse for Faiza. She's lost her husband and the father of their soon-to-be-born child. We haven't failed yet, I tell myself, trying to buck up my spirits. Deep down, I refuse to believe that Max is dead. I imagine him to be lying low somewhere, waiting for the attention of the Bratford to move on before he can resurface and make contact with Faiza. Max will return, I tell myself, but the timing will be of his choosing. In a straight battle of brain power, Max will beat me 99 times out of 100. If he doesn't want to be found, 
there's probably little I can do to thwart that ambition. I think of Nadia too. We parted on good terms. We'd shared my last night in San Francisco together, renting a room in an upmarket hotel, but she was decidedly non-committal on when, or if, we'd see each other again. I'm getting the distinct impression that our worlds, having overlapped in Iceland and San Francisco, are once again drifting apart. I'm not sure that they will ever come together again. I guess a nascent beer belly, prominent sideburns, and an uncanny ability to recite from memory the entire script of Shaun of the Dead aren't enough to retain the affections of such a glamorous woman. I don't get a lot of sleep on Sunday night, but, true to my promise, I'm back at my desk bright and early on Monday morning. My manager greets me with a strange combination of sarcasm and relief. I think that he really was worried that he would have to search for a replacement for me. And we both know that I'd be damned difficult to replace. I spend most of the day catching up on the mountain of email that's accumulated in my absence and firefighting a couple of issues that have reached crisis point in my absence, despite my boss's best efforts, or perhaps because of. Before I know it, the day is done, and I'm heading back home in the midst of the evening commuter rush. It feels like an age since I had last done this. The underground is full of unfamiliar posters for books and films. It feels very strange to be back in the ritual of the daily commute. I feel like I'm walking around in a daze. Everything seems different. Or perhaps it's me who has changed. I call Faser on Monday evening to find out the latest. She tells me that Nadia flew back to Europe that afternoon. As Faser is now all by herself again, she's decided to call her younger sister and let her know the situation. I tell her that I think that's an excellent idea. I've done all that I can, but Faser needs the support that can only come from close family members. I promise that if anything should turn up on Max, I will be on the first plane back to United States. Faser says that Nadia made the same promise as she departed. I'm always there for you. If you need me, just ask, I say. I know. I appreciate that. Thank you, replies Faser. We end the call and I go back to my regular life in London. I'm already dreading the arrival of my next credit card bill. Chapter 27 The working week progresses all too slowly. I drag myself into the office each morning and listlessly perform the work set for me by my boss. In the evening, I drag myself home again. Faser and I talk on the phone every other day, but there's little to report. Faser has contacted her sister about the situation, and her sister insisted on immediately flying over to be with her. I'm glad that Faser's got company again. I hate the thought of her being all alone in that flat. I try calling Nadia on her mobile a couple of times. The phone rings, but no one answers, and I eventually get put through to her voicemail. I leave a couple of messages, asking her to call me back, but I haven't had any response. Due to my jet lag, I struggle to get to sleep at night. And when I do finally manage to sleep, I often suffer vivid nightmares. I dream that I'm back in the cyber commune, looking at the pile of dead bodies. 
The eyes of the corpses stare up at me, as if to say, Why couldn't you have done more? Then I wake, drenched in sweat. To help me sleep, I decide to get back into the habit of regular exercising. I start to visit the gym daily. The first few sessions are painful, but I soon begin to feel better for them. The following week follows the same pattern. I trudge into work each day. Pfizer and I talk every other evening, and my calls to Nadia get put straight to voicemail oblivion. I try sending her an email, but again nothing comes back in response. At least things are getting easier at work. The immediate crises are resolved, and my boss is less caustic around me. Another month or two, and I might even be back in his good books again. I think a lot about Max, especially in the wee hours of the night, when everything is quiet. Even though we would talk together only about once a month, it was always good to know that he was there at the other end of the phone for a chat or a laugh. It's only now that he's gone that I realise how much I valued his friendship and advice. The week after that is much the same. Fazer and I talk a couple of times on the phone. My boss's attitude towards me improves still further. The following Saturday, I go to bed early. The next thing I know is that my band is ringing. Groggily, I reach for it and look at the time. It's 3.55am. I tap to answer the call. The unmistakable voice of Buckeridge yells out from the built-in speaker. We have a match! We have a match! I sit bolt upright in bed. A match, I say, barely daring to hope that I've understood him correctly. A match for Max? Yes, thunders Buckeridge. We found him! Where is he? I ask. Buckeridge hesitates for a moment. Well, there's the rub, he admits, now speaking slightly more quietly. The queries are coming from locations all around the world, according to geolocation. There were two searches from the same machine that matched within a couple of minutes of each other. One was from Colombia. The other was from Australia. Maybe Max has been busy inventing teleportation, I joke. Or, hang on a moment, could he be using a Tor client? Of course, exclaims Buckeridge. That would explain the random nature of the locations. Tor is an anonymizing network with servers located all around the world. A user can send their internet data via this network. Each packet of data gets sent via a different path through the Tor network, exiting at a different Tor server. Thus, a casual inspection of the IP addresses used in the data packets would show widely varying locations. Max is clearly taking great effort to protect his identity. How are we going to overcome this? I've read a few white papers on the Tor technology and know that it is difficult to pinpoint a user who is using it. What else can we do? I have a sudden flash of inspiration. Tell me, I say to Buckeridge, do we have the actual text of the search queries that Max was making? I don't know, says Buckeridge. Let me check. The line goes quiet. I hear rapid typing going on in the background. I guess that Buckeridge is IMing his associate. 
once again I speculate as to who he might be and how he could have such unfettered access to the company's search technologies. Buckeridge returns to the line. Yes, we do, he announces excitedly. He's doing searches for public Wi-Fi, bus timetables and subway maps. All for Toronto. Bingo. Max is in Canada, shouts Buckeridge. That was episode four of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0 international license.